So this is um, uh, lesson number nine in our study, if you're keeping track um, of, our fir of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And we've basically worked our way through the first five and a half days of creation. We did a jet tour kind of overview last week of all six days. Um, and today we're going to start a discussion of the seminal sort of apex uh, period of the creation work of God and, and, and that he, on the sixth day, you know, as you know, created man. And this really introduces to us a, uh, the beginning of a biblical anthropology. Um, it introduces to us as well sort of the foundations of the massive clash of worldviews that we have been consistently sort of talking about. So as we kind of uh, introduce this today, I want, us to kind of, I want us to kind of engage in a little bit of discussion, and, and I want you to help me a little bit. Um, help me kind of develop through observation of the text um, some things that, that you immediately recognize as significant as we, as we kind of look at it um, and, and distinctive. And I'll, I'll pose the question more specifically in just a moment. But uh, we're going to just kind of pick up in verse 24 of Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to, obviously we're going to zero in on uh, the, the part in verse 26 where it starts with uh, God's creation of man. But let's just, let's just read the whole text of the sixth day of creation starting in verse 24. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds and over, of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So as we've been tracking through the creation narrative here in Genesis chapter 1, we pointed out a number of different times, and as we've just kind of tracked through the text itself, we've seen sort of a pattern emerge, sort of a pattern of the way that the, the language of the text is laid out. Um, we established that pattern very early on about how God would sort of speak, something would come into being, uh, you would have a, generally in most cases you would have some kind of verdict being declared, God saw that what he made and he, and he declared it good, and then you would have the passing of evening and morning on the numbered day. So you have this, this pattern that, that emerges. Now when we come to the creation of man here on creation day six, what are some distinguishing features that we see introduced to us in the text? Just observational features that we see here um, that, that kind of set it apart from the rest of the creation work that's preceded this particular section. 
What are some things that just jump out to you right away? Let us. So two things here. First, let us. So there's this, there's this dialogue that seems to be introduced of some sort. Um, there is the introduction of this idea, this concept, this uniqueness of God's creative work here of let us create man in our image, or the image of God is introduced, and we'll talk about that more specifically in a minute. What else do you see? Okay, so you have a, a unique sort of singling out, sort of a bracketing, if you will, of the creation of man, but really a distinction there, male and female in his image. We'll, we'll, we'll elaborate on that in just a minute. You guys are, you guys are hitting them all. Yes, actually, that's, that's a big one, too, the introduction of man having dominion. What else? Yeah, so you, obviously there, that, that's got to mean something, right? I mean, there's a lot, of, a lot more information that's, that's given here, a lot more detail, a lot more emphasis that's put on just the sheer volume of words that are used to describe this. And what do we know about Chapter 2, possibly? Uh, what, where do we go in Chapter 2? You guys remember that? Did anybody read ahead? I know some of you have been reading ahead you know, in the Bible here, getting ahead of us. But Chapter 2, what does Chapter 2 kind of in, in, end up focusing on? even more, creation of man and what happens and how it happens, right? It just elaborates on that. The way I kind of envision this is, you know how you, you open up, uh, you know, like Google Maps uh, on the web and, you, and you're looking for, uh, like, the city of Atlanta and you have it sort of zoomed way out and you see it as, you know, a dot with different freeways or whatever kind of running through it. And then you zoom in and all of a sudden you see, you know, buildings and roadways and everything. So it kind of Chapter 1 that we're looking at now is a little bit of a higher view, and then you get to chapter 2, and you get even more detail. So you could even say that the, the section here on Creation Day 6, it gets even more elaboration than just what you see, even though what you see in this section in chapter 1 is more than what you see in the rest of the creation narrative of Genesis chapter 1. So this is, this is, the, this is the, the seminal moment in creation um, um, for God here creating man, and and all of that it that entails. So what else do you see? The blessing of God. Some specific things that, that are tied to that blessing, if you will, or implied as part of that blessing. What else? I mean, you guys are hitting most of them, I think. Anything else you guys see that just kind of jumped out to you as the distinguishing feature? There's a superlative verdict. It's unique. Right. Anything else? Um, it it did say that on uh, when it when in creating the living creatures that the the, the birds and the, the sea creatures, it says and God blessed them, saying, "Be fruitful and multiply." This is a little bit of a different uh, construction here, a little bit of unique construction, and I, I'll I'll speak to that in a moment. So yeah, that's a good good catch. Anything else? I mean, you guys are covering most of what I, I have here. And, of course, I had the benefit of looking at this ahead of time. So, you know, my, my bullet points are, I, I think, uh, much more 
um, I'll say much more um, intended to be uh, clever and you know ca capture your attention. Um, whether they rise to that level is certainly you know open for debate at this point. But I did try to go through and, and sort of um, highlight some of these in, in succinct ways, and then we can talk about them. And, and of course, we're just introducing this. We're going to kind of dig more deeply into this. And in fact, I think in order for us to really effectively uh, sort of cover this 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 reality of a biblical anthropology, particularly in light of sort of current worldview about man. Um, we're going to deal a lot with Genesis chapter 2 as well as we go forward. But no doubt, I mean, clearly what we've just, in a, this little bit of little bitty observe, observation exercise that we've done, clearly there's a huge distinction just in the text alone. I mean, forget the implication or meaning of the words in the text. Let's just say that by virtue of what is written here, just by an observation of the text itself, there's something very distinct about this particular part of creation. Commands, there's commands, there's mandates that are issued. We're going to talk about that. What's that? Talk about their food. Yeah, he mentions food, the vegetarian decree that we talked about last time. We'll talk about that in a second. So, yeah, so there's something clearly distinct. Listen to what um, John MacArthur said in uh, his book, The Battle for the Beginning. And this really kind of, I think, introduces um, or, or highlights sort of the very first element that you see here that I think is so profound. He says, a significant change in the creation process occurs at this point. Verse 26 starts with familiar words, then God said. Nothing new to report, right? Then God said. That is the same formula used to introduce every previous act of creation. But suddenly, there is a major shift in the language. Up to this point, every occurrence of the then God said had been followed by the words, let there be or let the earth bring forth, or let the waters abound, or let the waters be gathered together. Always the language of fiat, of command, of let it be done. Those expressions are impersonal in the sense that they are mandates issued to no one in particular. They are sovereign, creative decrees that immediately brought things into existence ex nihilo, or out of nothing. Never before has God said, let us make anything. But now for the first time, the expression, then God said, is followed by personal pronouns. Let us make man in our image. This speaks of the creation of Adam in terms that are uniquely personal. Scripture deliberately employs such pronouns in order to stress God's intimate connection with this aspect of his creation. It establishes a personal relationship between God and man that does not exist with any other aspect of creation, not with light, not with water, not with the other elements, or even the earth itself, not with the sun, the moon, the stars, or the stellar bodies, and not even with other living creatures he made. He has no personal relationship with any of those things in the same sense he does with humanity. This, to me, is... This seminal shift that you see here, and that we're introduced right out of the gate, in that you see God bringing a personal involvement of himself, of his character, of his nature in this part of creation, in a very distinctive way that you don't see in the other elements of creation on the other creation days. God gets personal here, if you want to put it that way. 
This is the point where God starts to get really personal. Now, we also mentioned uh, that you have this, this use of let us, which is plural. So you're, you're introduced to what I am terming uh, the Trinitarian, Trinitarian Council. The Trinitarian Council. Now, the language itself is not explicitly Trinitarian. And in fact, if you think about Moses as the, the author of Genesis, um, why, would it not, why would it not be explicitly a Trinitarian statement for Moses to say, let us make man in our image, and him be thinking, well, I'm thinking of the Trinity? Why would it not be that from Moses as the author's perspective? What would be the limitation of Moses at that point? Not a trick question. Well, okay, when was Moses around prior to another seminal figure in redemptive history? Right? He was before Christ, right? So there was no sense of the incarnation of God in the person of Christ, right? So, so it's, it's fair to say that there would be no um, conceivable, graspable conception, if you will, that would make sense, that would be sort of translatable to... The, the, the Hebrew people at that time, the readers of Genesis as it was written. So I don't mean to say that what you have here is Moses saying, hey, listen, what happened here is that the Father and the Son and the Spirit said, hey, let's make man in our image. That's not what I'm saying by the Trinitarian Council. But clearly you have this an introduction of a plurality of relationship uh, in, in the Godhead that's introduced here. And we have, we have hints of that already in the text itself. So, for example, the plural noun form of the Hebrew name for God, Elohim, is used in 21 of the prior verses, okay? But what also do you have in verse 2 that gives you some indication of this plural? That's right, the Spirit's involvement in creation. In verse 2, it says, the Spirit of God, in the beginning, verse 1, God created the heavens and the earth, and then verse 2, the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. So you already have this indication of an understanding of plurality, uh, of the Godhead. But what, what do we have the benefit of as well in our day and time? We have the gospel. We have the benefit of progressive revelation, of additional revelation of the New Testament. And we've read this passage several different times in our study. But what do we know from John chapter 1? Jesus was there, right? In the beginning, it says, was the Word in John chapter 1. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. So we have this benefit of progressive revelation to kind of help us get a better vision of what was going on there. So whether or not Moses understood fully what that meant, there's clearly some indication within the text itself that would indicate this, this Trinitarian relationship. Uh, and, and then also we have the benefit of passages like John chapter 1 that clearly put um, the incarnate Christ and the Father and the Spirit present in, in creation. So you have this, this, this council, if you will. And again, I, words, when you start thinking about this and you start trying to put your mind sort of back to that moment, I mean, we're, we're falling short. I mean, there's no way for us to really grasp in a mental picture, you know, what this looked like or seemed like. But, but, the, but you have to just distinguish this part of creation, you have this, this full relational Godhead 
council that takes place to, to, to make a decree, to make a, a declaration that something unique and substantial is about to happen that sets it apart completely from the rest of creation. Okay? You also have, and we already mentioned that, you have what theologians would call the imago Dei, the image of God. So you see that man, according to the scripture, is made in the image of God. He says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. We're just going to touch on this a little bit. We're going, to, we're going to dig more deeply into this as we go forward. But just to make a few minor points, um, clearly this is not physiological in nature in terms of likeness, right? This is, so it can't be physiological. God is spirit, so we know that. Um, so we have to ascertain that there is an element of spiritual likeness here. And what I would argue for, and I think uh, would have plenty of theological support, uh, um, a commentary support and um, scholarly support for, this is really about a spiritual likeness that has to do with sort of the comprehensive consciousness of man that's distinct. Man has a spiritual consciousness. He, ha- he is self-conscious. Man is self-aware in a way that's unique. Man has a moral consciousness that's unique from the rest of creation in the animal kingdom. And, and man has a, a relational consciousness or a consciousness of others in relationship to himself. And, and most supremely, a consciousness of God, man's relationship to God, that's very distinct. So, so just to kind of touch on the subject very briefly, what you have here in the image of God is you have this spiritual likeness, okay? Now, again, as we talked about this prior, um, Moses could quite possibly also uh, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, be writing a little bit of a polemic, a little bit of an argument, a rebut against ancient Near Eastern sort of creation narratives that had been circulated and written. Um, and what you find in those ancient Near Eastern narratives is you find man being in many ways an afterthought. Man is an afterthought and really is just kind of caught up in this cosmic battle and feuding and and, and territorial wars and, and, and such uh, with, with the gods, with the pantheon of gods, you know, a number of different pantheons of gods and names that you could identify. But, but the bottom line is that man is a bit of an afterthought in that whole mix of things. And so what we're seeing here is a complete contrast to that. That not only is man created in a special way, and in the flow of the narrative there is significant language differences, uh, significant volume of description differences, and all the things that we've already identified, but that man is created in the image of God and in his likeness, according to God's purpose and design, based upon this declaration in this Trinitarian Council. The next thing you see here is the dominion decree, is what I've called it, which you guys have already referenced, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over every, excuse me, and over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So you do have this unique role and function of man that's distinct, that man is not just a part of creation. Now, let's think about this for a second. How does this compare, or should I say contrast, with the common evolutionary worldview of man? I mean, in a huge way. Like, what are some, what are some key distinctions there, just on the part of the dominion decree? That's right. Just put the chart up, you know, put all the species and, and the families of animals and whatever, and man's just kind of in that chain, right? And the extreme view is that we should go away from 
That's right. I mean, if you want to get to the extreme worldview in, in terms of, you know, sort of environmental, really, it's really, and this is where we need to, our, our thinking really needs to be shaped in these matters. You're talking about idolatry here. You're talking about worship of the one true creator God versus worship of the creation. Okay, that's what you're talking about. And we need to get very astute at speaking and thinking in very clear and distinct biblical terms on these matters. But you're right, there are those that would advocate that man is really the problem, man is the destroyer of creation, and really it would be best if man just went away. That's not, I mean, that's not a fanciful sort of position. And I think, I think it's safe to say that, that those kinds of arguments, though they may not necessarily be gaining significant ground, I, I think you could probably argue that they're gaining ground in certain places of power, and, and, and policy making and things that sort of shape our experience of, of life and economics and all that. But, but they're certainly becoming what, much more bold and brash in their pronouncements at minimum, right? I mean, they're, they're becoming much more overt in their conclusions that they're drawing. And this is in complete contrast to what God actually made and what God actually said about what he made, and in particular, in, in who he made in creating uh, man and woman. So you have this dominion decree that takes place in the context of this Trinitarian council. You have him pronouncing a decree about making man in his image and in his likeness, and then you have this pronouncement about the dominion that man would have. Now, what you'll see in verse 27, and this was, this was mentioned as well, you guys caught them all, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. What you see here is a singularity of the species. Singularity of the species. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, you contrast that to what he said about the other elements of creation when he said, created them according to their kind. Here, he's setting that apart and saying, there's a singularity of this species. And, and it's, it's that he created man as a species identification. Male and female, he created them. And he gives us the gender distinction there. There's a singularity there. Again, when you think about this in contrast to an evolutionary mindset about man, it couldn't be more stark, the difference. There is a distinction here. There's a gender distinction. Oh, and the other thing I want to mention here, too, about this. So you have this contrast about man, create, man not being according to his kind, as you do other elements of creation, animals and plants and so forth. You have man created in the image of God with just this male-female gender distinction here. Notice that there's nothing here that would indicate uh, distinctions of ethnicity or race. It's not there. These are constructs of a fallen world. Okay? These ideas of division by ethnicity or race. This is a construct of post-fall human existence. There is man created in the image of God, both male and female. That's it. And that's not to say that there are not distinctions in culture and, and that kind of thing, but what we have to recognize is that oftentimes we, as we do in so many other ways that we've talked about before, we bring into our understanding of the scripture and consequently our worldview, we bring into it things like distinctions that aren't really supposed to be there. Very important point. God created man 
in his image, male and female. That's it. Now, there is a gender distinction. And I think that that's an important thing. Can anybody think of why that would be an important thing to bring up in this day and time? We have currently going on at this ag aggressive effort to blur all distinctions in gender, right? Now, here's the problem. We talked about this before, particularly as it relates to our understanding of origins and how the church and otherwise faithful professing Christian people have been co-opted by scientific, uniformitarian, naturalistic presuppositions about how things came to be, and so therefore they want to adopt sort of a evolutionary slash I still love the Bible kind of worldview and mindset about these things. The same is true in the perspective of gender distinctions. The, the distinctiveness of male and female, of man and woman, and that distinction as it plays out all throughout Scripture, is being blurred. And Christians have been co-opted by modern cultural ideas about that, as opposed to what, what's the biblical worldview on male-female distinction. So you can look at this creation narrative as it's, play, as it's playing out before us, particularly with this idea of a biblical anthropology, and at almost every turn, invariably, you're seeing this worldview clash over and over and over again. And when you see things happening in our culture, in our sort of a modern American culture, and policies and Supreme Court decisions and, and decisions about you know, schools and gender-neutral bathrooms and all this sort of stuff, we need to recognize this not as a battle of electoral politics. It's not what this is about. I'm certainly, I'm certainly an advocate of civic duty and voting your conscience and, and voting according to biblical principles and, and conscience and all that. But what I'm saying is that the heart of the matter here is a matter of the heart, and we're talking about worldview clash. And this particular section uh, highlights that so significantly. Male and female, he created them. He created distinction there in gender. Now also, there, are, there is sameness. Image bearers. It's not just man, guys, sorry. You're not just the only image bearer, right? Male and female, he created them in our image and likeness. And so man and woman are both equal image bearers of God. So any kind of distortion about you know, superiority or domination or anything like that, those are, those are injected post-fall, okay? Those are sinful constructs after the fall. Distinct in role and function, but equal before God as image bearers of him, okay? We'll talk about that more as we go forward. You also see here this, and I, again, I'm, I, this is, uh, to, to really build this out further, we'll have to step into Genesis chapter 2, and we will going forward as well as other passages of Scripture, but what you see here uh, indicated or sort of um, introduced a little bit, you see a hint of it, is this blessing of marriage, family, and work. This blessing of marriage, family, and work. You see this starting in verse 28. It says in verse 28, uh, starting with the procreation mandate, to be fruitful and multiply. Well, actually, let me go back up to the beginning there. It says, and God blessed them. Okay, distinct construct there. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, 
and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You have here this, this blessing, this, this blessing of marriage, family, and work sort of intimated or indicated here that gets more fully uh, elaborated on in chapter 2. But it starts with this procreation mandate, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is a key uh, purpose of a gender distinction, procreation, filling the earth, right? So all these ideas about there is no real distinction or, you know, kind of pick your orientation and just make it work for you and that kind of thing, well, it, that completely defies a very fundamental purpose of gender distinction in the created order of things by God. Fill the earth. It's a blessing. Be fruitful and multiply. And then there's the work mandate. Now, this is not as clear in terms of the, the wording of the text, but he says, fill the earth, and then he says to do what? To subdue it, right? To subdue it. Now, that's an indication of, of working the earth, of, of, of tilling the ground. This gets a little more fleshed out in chapter 2 as well. But this is the idea of, of work. There's a blessing of work. In other words, sorry to say this, but work is not a post-fall construct. Work is a blessed thing, Okay. So there's this, there's this blessing of, of subduing the earth, of, of working the earth, okay? And then there's the dominion mandate. You have the dominion decree in the first part where he's, he's in the Trinitarian Council, let us make man in our image and let him have dominion and all that. But here's the mandate. He's telling man and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So this dominion mandate is this balance of authority and stewardship, right? It's a balance of authority and stewardship over the earth. Um, it's, not a it's not a divine right to, to, you know, for animal cruelty or you know, some kind of abuse of God's creation in some way. There is a stewardship here, but it's certainly not uh, sort of mother earth worship and all the variants of that that play out in both political and policy uh, circles and, and everything else. There's a balance here, this dominion mandate, mandate. And it's part of this blessing of marriage, family, and work. I mean, you have kind of this, this beginning indication of, of building a family and building a sort of a society and building you know, work and, and just the activity. And in fact, it's kind of inherent in the six days of creation because we know on day seven, God rested, and upon that is built sort of this inherent work week and then a day of rest that uh, is indicated by, by um, Jewish law and practice that is spoken of in Exodus and other places. So you have this blessing of marriage, family, and work that's broken out by this procreation mandate and this work mandate and this dominion mandate. And then you have this generous provision of God, gracious, generous provision of God when he says, and, and, and God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heaven, and to every, everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I've given every green plant for food, and it was so. So you have, we mentioned this, I think, last time, you have this sort of this vegetarian decree. Like, everybody was vegetarians. Every, every man and animal ate from the fruit of the earth that God provided. But notice there is this declaration of God, I have given this to you. There is this generous gracious giving of God in this provision. And, and you're seeing this, this environment where there is harmony and peace. There's not this introduction of, you know, fight for your, your sustenance. 
and you know this clash of man and animal, man and beast. It's not. It's not there. That comes later. You see this this peaceful harmony in this pre-fall created world, and this gracious provision of God of food. Now, this is going to become very poignant when we get to Genesis chapter 3 and we look at the fall. We start talking about trees that are good for food and pleasing to the eye and look tasty and that kind of thing. Um, This is going to be a very important um, point to make when we look at that. Because the idea here that we struggle with in a post-fall mindset and also, as part of the curse that we struggle in, that we labor in, is that we feel like we're sort of in a bit of a fight for survival, right? We're having to work and labor. It's thorns and thistles, right? We're having to deal with a post-fall world and a post-fall creation. But the fact of the matter is, is that even in the midst of that, God has been very generous in his giving of provision on this planet, and certainly before the fall. But it points out to us our, our, our tendency toward believing or being convinced in our sin and our deception that somehow God is holding back, and that somehow God is not provided generously, and we'll see that play out very vividly in Genesis 3 when we get to the fall. And then you have this last point here, the superlative verdict of God, and God saw that everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. This is distinct from the other verdicts that he gives, and that it adds this addition of it being very good. And so when you think about, again, we we pointed this out before, but when you think about this in contrast to a more current sort of evolutionary mindset, um, this this is not the primordial ooze environment that evolves over time, and the only way that evolution happens is through mutation and violence, right? Bloodshed, survival of the fittest, those kinds of things. This this creation, this new creation, and at the apex of it, man and woman was very good. God looked at it and saw that it was very good. So here we have an introduction of a biblical anthropology. And we see that as we think about who man is, how God has created him, and we elaborate on that when we get to Genesis chapter 2, we're going to find that the implications of Genesis chapter 3, and remember all this in context moving toward Genesis chapter 3 in the fall, that the, probably one of the biggest challenges that you and I face on a day-to-day basis is a, a sort of a short-term memory lapse on a, a genuine biblical anthropology. Like what, what does it really mean to be a man and a woman who was created for a purpose in a particular environment, but fell, and now we're living out as new creations in Christ in a post-fall world. There are, there are um, I'll give you, and I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about to kind of illustrate the point. Oftentimes, and I think that this plays out most poignantly in uh, parenting of children. There is a tendency, and, and there's, I think, an appropriate uh, instinct for parents to want to protect their children. In other words, I would not be an advocate to say, hey, listen, you know, let your kids go play on the interstate. It'll help them learn you know, survival t- tactics or whatever. <laughs> okay, so we have, we have this natural instinct to want to protect our children. But the problem with that 
is that when we seek to protect our children from what you can never ultimately protect them from, and, and so your motivation is protection rather than instruction in what is true and helping them to start gradually learning what it means to live in a world that was created this way, that was, is fallen, and now is this way, and here's how we're to live, you end up finding this motivation to somehow recapture Eden for our kids. And so what happens is you start to view the conflict that is going to be part and parcel of a child living in a fallen world. We start to view that conflict and, their, and our, our, our actual observation of their experience of that conflict, and we want to rescue them from it. Because we want to recapture Eden, right? And so what we do is we, do, we have tactics and we do things with other people that try to, you know, try to push people out of the way and shield our kids and we feel like that something is a threat that's really not a threat. It's just you're bumping into people. I see this all the time in a school environment where you've got sort of what is characteristic of kids, kind of sinful kids, kind of colliding with each other on a day-to-day basis. When I say colliding with each other, I do mean literally at times colliding with each other, but more importantly... I mean relationally and sort of in their, in their relational dynamic, just bumping up their sin, kind of bumping up against each other. And you'll have parents that view that as, we can't have this. This is just, we, um, we, this is just, we can't have this. And I'm not advocating that, hey, listen, just let it ride. It's all good. What I'm saying is that our expectations cannot be informed by some notion of recapturing Eden. Okay, it has to be informed by a true understanding of where we are as men and women in a post-fall world. But God created this, and it was very good. And then we find our way to Genesis chapter 3, and we see what happens there. Any final comments before we close in prayer? All right, let's pray.